If you have your Bibles, open them up to Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3. While you're turning there, I have to ask, how many lefties do we have in the room? If you're left-handed, raise your hand. Okay? I see a good number out there. Do you know that four of the last seven U.S. presidents were lefties? So if uh, Barack Obama, Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, and Bill Clinton were here today, their hands would be raised as well. I got in a discussion not too long ago with some people about whether or not it was an advantage to be left-handed. And as a lefty myself, I said, the disadvantages are obvious. We live in a right-hand world. As a kid, when I would write, the, the, the pencil would smear across the page, the ink would smear across the page when, when I would write. Most scissors feel really awkward in your left hand. As a kid, it was so hard to find a set of left-handed golf clubs. You, you right-handed people, there are so many things that you take for granted. Like when I hold my cards, my playing cards, I can't see the numbers. When I take a multiple choice test, I, I cover up all the answers that I'm trying to choose. And zippers, have you ever considered this? Like most zippers are almost impossible to zip and unzip with your left hand. But you righties never think about that. Now the advantages, they're maybe not so obvious. But did you know that lefties are more likely to be geniuses? Statistically, you have a greater chance of having an IQ over 140 if you're a lefty. Say, what's the correlation? Well, no one knows. Sports. In most sports, other opponents aren't used to the movements that a southpaw brings. It introduces an element of surprise. How about this? Seeing underwater. No joke. I have no idea why, but left-handers can see better underwater. And so if you're ever in a game of underwater hide-and-seek, choose a lefty. But throughout history, left-handedness has definitely been considered a weakness. The Latin word for left is sinister, which also means evil. The French word for left is gauche, which means awkward. Even the English word left comes from the old English word that means weak. If you skateboard left-footed, it's called skating goofy. So believe it or not, left-handedness plays an important role in teaching us how God works in the world. One of Israel's first judges was a southpaw. His name was Ehud. But before I get to the story, I want to show you this little phrase that the author uses to set up these stories because it shows you the kinds of things that God wants you to learn from them. Let's begin reading in Judges 3, verse 1. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. So what's the answer to the question, why did God leave these pockets or these remnants of Canaanites in the promised land? Well, in one sense, it was because that first generation of Israelites had not believed God enough to drive them out. But did you see a couple of other things in those verses there? Verse 1, he did it to test them. Verse 2, it was so that these new generations might learn to fight wars in God's strength. So imagine for a moment, okay, that you're an Israelite child, and you'd just gotten back from Sunday school. Well, for a Jew, it would have been Sabbath school, okay? And that day, you had learned about God's promise to give Israel the promised land of Canaan. 
but you know that there are still these pockets, these remnants of, of Canaanites everywhere. And so you ask, Dad, why are all these unbelievers living in the land? Didn't God give this land to us? And your dad said, well, because of the sins of our parents. And you say, well, that's not fair. It's not our fault. Their sin is not our sin. So after they died, why didn't God, you know, send swarms of fire ants or something to drive out all these people? And the answer was to test us, to see whether we would believe God and to teach us to trust him to fight for us. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever wonder why God just doesn't cure you of sin the moment that you're saved? You know, why not just give us heaven now? Sin-free, problem-free, pain-free right now? Well, the answer, in part, according to Judges 3, 1, and 2, is because he wants us to learn to struggle against these things in his strength. To teach us to rely on his grace, not on our flesh. The Apostle Paul says that trials and weaknesses, God leaves these in our lives in order to keep us humble. So sometimes God will allow you to struggle with a lesser sin to keep you from a bigger one, pride. If you were immediately cured from sin, you'd get proud. And so the story of this judge and every judge, in part, is to teach you how to fight the fight of faith. Look down at verse 12. It says, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Now, Eglon was a bad man. For 18 years, he raped and pillaged and murdered the Israelites. Verse 15, again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. Literally what it says is he could not use his right hand, which means that he was probably disabled. His, his right hand was either born withered or it had been crushed. Now, that society was even more cruel to disabled people than our own. So to have a guy whose right hand was useless would have meant that they considered Ehud to be useless. But Ehud was brave. He was a man of faith. And he volunteered to, to bring tribute, tribute payment to Eglon. So he loaded up his wagon with gold but he also packed a little surprise. Verse 16, now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long. A cubit's about 18 inches, okay? Which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. Can someone say concealed carry knife? That's what we got going on here. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. You say, okay, that seems like a pretty irrelevant detail. Oh, but it's not. Verse 18, after Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, leave us, and they all left. Now, I'm sorry, I can't help it. It may just be me and the way that I think, but when I picture this scene in my mind, I, I picture Jabba the Hutt from Star Wars, Okay. So if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. If not, don't worry about it. Verse 20. As the king rose from his seat, 
he who had reached with his left hand drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Now, Eglon literally did not see this coming. Remember, Ehud had a withered right hand. Eglon would have never seen him as a threat. If he would have, he would have never let him in unattended. But this is a disabled guy. He doesn't even have a strong right arm. What's there to fear? Verse 22, even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Now, I'm reading from the NIV. The ESV translation comes out swinging. It just says, and the dung came out, okay? The NIV makes it sound like all highbrow, high class by saying the bowels discharged. No, the dung came out, okay? That's what happened. Verse 23, then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. You know why they thought that? Because that's what it smelled like, okay? Verse 25, they waited to the point of embarrassment. So I just, again, I just picture at first they're kind of making a few jokes, right? Do you guys hear any movement in there? No, but I smell one, okay? After a while, it gets really weird, okay? It says, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked it. There they saw their Lord fall into the floor, dead. Well, by this point, Ehud is safely away from the palace, and he rallies Israel, and they rise up against Moab. And verse 30 says, that day Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace, 80 years. Well, believe it or not, some of the most essential keys for spiritual victory are found in this colorful, and let's be honest, slightly disgusting story. I'll start with the most important. Number one, God's Savior would come in weakness. God's Savior would come in weakness. With Ehud, a very important trajectory had just begun in Judges. It's a completely unexpected one. The book of Judges opens with Joshua. Joshua was a mighty general who led a strong Israelite army. He was what you would think of as the ultimate warrior leader. But even after a leader and after success like that, Israel still isn't faithful to God. So just a couple of chapters into Judges, the first major story we come to is that of Ehud, a left-handed, crippled leader. At first, he doesn't even fight with an army. He goes in and defeats Eglon by himself. Then the army fights. The next judge will be Deborah. She partners up with a somewhat cowardly man named Barak. And this story is fascinating in how it elevates women, but it shattered common Israelite conceptions of strength. And whereas Joshua and Ehud lead all the tribes into battle, Deborah and Barak lead only two tribes, not 12. After that, we come to Gideon. Gideon is a man who's very timid at first, but God has him whittle down his army to just 300 men. And with these 300 men, he, defi- he defeats the entire army of the Midianites. Then we come to Samson. He fights all by himself. He whips an entire Philistine army with the jawbone of a donkey. And after the book of Judges, we come to David, a scrawny and weak shepherd boy who writes music and slays a giant with a slingshot. Do you see the trajectory? We're going from strength to weakness, 
from winning battles under the direction of a great warrior leader and through the strength of their army to God using a small, weak shepherd boy to defeat the enemy by himself. This points the way to the most unexpected and left-handed person of all. Jesus was an unlikely savior. Isaiah 53 says that there was nothing in his appearance that would attract us to him, that he was despised and rejected by men. You would have never looked at Jesus and said, that looks like the savior of the world. He was poor. Probably wasn't very tall. Not very good looking. Didn't have a commanding presence. I hate to burst your bubble, but he didn't look like Jim Caviezel, okay? And he achieved this victory all alone, like David. But on behalf of his people, not helped in any way by them. And he crushed his people's enemies through his own weakness, like Ehud. Just as Ehud's victory was a surprise to Eglon, so Jesus' victory came as a a complete surprise to the forces of evil. They didn't see it coming. The Roman political leaders and the Jewish religious leaders thought that they had killed him, that he was no threat. But when they closed the door on, on him in death, he pulled out the dagger of resurrection and he stabbed the powers of death right in the heart. What Judges tells you is that God is going to send salvation in a way that no one was expecting and a lot of people would miss. Paul says that Jesus was a stumbling block to both Jews and Greeks because he did not meet their expectations. He was there, but they missed him like a stumbling block. See, when the Jews thought about salvation, they were looking for a mighty warrior king who would end all oppression and enrich his people Israel. Greeks were looking for a philosopher king who would educate and enlighten the world. But no one expected a savior who wouldn't even own a home and who would be executed as a criminal. Today, people miss him because we're looking for a different kind of savior. The agnostic New Testament scholar Bart Ehrman was once asked, what would it take for you to believe in Jesus? Ehrman responded, had he ended all suffering? In other words, what Ehrman is saying is Jesus is too politically weak to be a savior from God. But I would ask, but what if he had a different way of defeating evil? What if our main problem was not suffering on earth, but separation from God? What if the real tragedy was not that we suffer with cancer, but that we die in the first place? And what if Jesus saved us by removing the curse, by suffering in our place, and then stabbing death in the heart by his resurrection? Listen, the whole Bible points to Jesus, every story. Let me tell you why I believe. We often talk about how there are over 300 prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus in the New Testament. That's very convincing. But these kinds of predictions are even more convincing to me. It's that the Bible is one story. It's complete. It's unique among all world religions. That God saves through weakness and surprise and substitution, not strength and confidence. Second lesson we learn is that God saves us now through the weakness of faith. God saves us now through the weakness of faith. To get this point, you have to understand that we are all trying to save ourselves. Israel in captivity under the oppression of cruel forces gives us a picture of every human being. 
We all know that we need some kind of salvation. Both religious people and irreligious people, they know this. They just seek it in different places. Religious people try to earn salvation by being good enough, by being morally strong enough in order to earn God's blessing. It goes like this, if I'm good enough, if I'm morally strong enough, if I keep all the rules and the tenets of my religion, then I will, I'll be good enough to earn God's acceptance. Irreligious people, they try to find salvation outside of God, but they do it through the same way. They try to be strong enough to obtain meaning and purpose and fulfillment for themselves. They say, if I'm rich enough, then I'll be happy. I'll be safe, and so I've got to work hard. I've got to put in the hours. I've got to climb the corporate ladder. Or if I'm a good mother or if I'm a good spouse, then I'll know that I'm worth something. If I set myself apart, then I'll have purpose. Other people think, well, if I can just find the right person, if I can just fall in love, then my life will have meaning and the void in my life will be filled. I remember an interview with recording artist Drake a couple years ago. It was after he was nominated for two Grammy Awards. He said this. There was a point where I felt like I needed to keep the company of a different woman every night. I was trying to fill a void. But in the 15 or so seconds after sex, I'd know it wasn't working. That 15 or 20 seconds is the realest moment a man will ever have in his life. The next day, I'd convince myself to do it again. But during that time, I knew it wasn't working. See, church, these are all ways that we search for salvation. We search for the freedom from the bondage of failure and dissatisfaction and meaninglessness and pain. But God's salvation would come a different way. Not through religious strength, not through career strength, not through beauty, but as a gift. In Philippians 3, Paul talks about how he tried to find salvation through both the religious and the irreligious ways. He said, at first, I tried to find peace with God by, by keeping the law better than everyone else. He said, then I tried to find fulfillment and purpose by setting myself apart from others. I was from the best family. I graduated from the best school. I had the best job. He said, but now I see all of those things as worthless, as rubbish, as dung. Righteousness, acceptance with God, fulfillment, all these things I was seeking, he said, are given as a gift of faith, the weakness of faith. You just receive it as a gift of mercy. In 1 Corinthians 1, he says that Jews and Greeks stumble over salvation because it looks foolish to them. It just looks too easy. Surely it's got to be more complicated. The Jews want to earn it through their moral superiority. The Greeks want to earn it through mental superiority. The Romans want to earn it through political superiority. But God's righteousness, he says, and God's wisdom and God's blessing, it's a gift. It's a gift that you can only receive through the weakness of faith. Here's what he writes in 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 27. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God's blessing, God's victory, God's acceptance can only be received as a gift. 
Friends, I want to ask you today, can you abandon your salvation efforts? And can you receive God's blessing and God's acceptance as a gift? See, what keeps us from the righteousness of God is not the left hand of our weakness, but the right hand of our strength. Here's the third lesson I think we learn. is that God mocks those who oppose him. God mocks those who oppose him. A biblical scholar named Dale Ralph Davis, he said that most Bible commentators miss the humor in this story. This story is told as a big joke. It's not that it wasn't true. It's just that they're mocking Eglon and they're retelling of it. They, they would have told this story with laughter. That's why we see all these bizarre details in here. So I see a couple of messages in that. One is be assured that God will mock those who oppose him. Those who stand against God will have a day when it looks like they're in charge. It looks like they always get their way, that everything they touch turns to gold. But God is working in history so his agenda will be accomplished. His name will be glorified. And those who stood against him will seem like a gnat who stands on the tracks of a railroad trying to defy a train. Good luck with that. The other lesson I learned from the humorous way in which this story is told is that one day our suffering will turn to joy. One day our suffering will turn to joy. Listen, the oppression that the Israelites felt was real. It was bitter. It was painful. But here they retell it with laughter. They look back on that, on that painful chapter and they recast it with the colors of joy. Listen, our pain, our struggle, our oppression is real. I don't want to take away from it. I don't want to minimize it. I don't want to diminish it. But one day, listen, one day, we will tell it without tears. God's resolution to our pain will make the oppression seem trivial. I love the way that C.S. Lewis describes it. He says it's like a bad night in a cheap hotel. You ever experienced that? When Tara and I moved from Knoxville, Tennessee to Dallas, Texas, we made that long drive down, down I-40. It was getting later in the evening. We got to Little Rock, Arkansas, and she asked, she said, do you, you want to stop? Do you want to call tonight? I said, I, I want to keep on going a little bit further. The further we drive today, the less we have to drive tomorrow. That was a huge mistake. Because <laughs> between Little Rock, Arkansas, and Texarkana, there's about a two, two and a half hour stretch where there's just about nothing. We kept going, and I was getting tired. My eyes were getting heavy. We had our car and the moving truck. And so finally, we, we saw this flickering lights of this kind of interstate roadside motel that we pulled over. We walk into the front desk, give them the money, get the keys. We walk into the room, don't even turn the lights on, just kind of fall down on the bed, exhausted. Mattress was just rock hard. There was dripping in the room all night long. It wasn't until the next morning when the first shades of light began to come through the room that we got to be able to get our bearings and see the, the mess that we were in. It was an old, grungy, dingy hotel. I went over to the sink and turned it on. It was like this brown-colored water before it turned, turned clear. We couldn't get out of that hotel quick enough. But you know what? We look back now, and we can laugh about it. Except, remember that hotel that we stayed in? Wasn't that disgusting? Wasn't that, that na and, and we, can, we can look back now, and we can smile. Listen, 
the tears of pain will turn into the laughter of triumph. One day, our suffering will turn to joy. Here's the last lesson we learn. It's that God values availability more than ability. God values availability more than ability. Ehud was a very unlikely candidate for a hero. He didn't even have a strong right hand. But, God, but he was willing to yield himself to be used by the Spirit of God. See, God's kingdom in this world does not come through ability, it comes through availability. Jesus taught his disciples that he could do more in a few minutes than they could do in an entire lifetime. Perhaps the best example of this is in John chapter 6. Do you remember the story? Jesus is teaching a crowd of over 5,000 people. It's getting late in the day and the people are getting hungry and so Jesus goes to his disciples and says, you give them something to eat. And Philip speaks up somewhat sarcastically and says, we could all work for eight months and still have not, wouldn't have enough money to, to pay for everybody to eat. So what's Jesus do? He takes a little boy, he takes a little boy's Lunchable, his Hebrew Happy Meal, right? He takes the five loaves and the two fish and he multiplies it and, and feeds everyone there. Do you know that's the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels? Do you know why I think that is? I think among other things, what Jesus was teaching his disciples and teaching you and me was a pattern for ministry. That one day they would face not a crowd of 5,000 hungry, but millions of lost people starving for the Gospel. He wanted them to know it was not about their power to do their work, but it was about what God could do through them. It was that Jesus could do more in 10 minutes with a little boy's lunch than Bill Gates could do with his entire fortune in 10 lifetimes. And so today, God advances his kingdom not through human strength, but through willing vessels. When I graduated high school, I had plans to this whole different career path. I had everything mapped out. But God got a hold of my life the last week of July before the fall semester of, of my freshman year, and I felt called to ministry, and so I went to Bible college my freshman year. I, I, I enjoyed it. I, I learned a lot, but, but I'll tell you what. I went to Bible college, and I felt out of place. I felt like I was surrounded by all these people who knew the Bible, all these people who were excellent speakers and communicators, people who were clearly cut out to be in ministry, and I just felt like that wasn't me. What I'm doing right now was the thing that scared me more than anything else in life. I was deathly afraid to talk in front of people. In my high school speech classes, I would just shake uncontrollably. I, I couldn't do it. And so I had made the decision by the end of my freshman year, you know what, I gave it a shot. But I'm going to go back in the summer, and I'm going I'm to go do what I had originally planned to do. It was towards the end of the semester, and we were in chapel that morning. And in full transparency, most chapels, I was kind of half checked in, half checked out. I stayed up late most nights, and so I'd go to chapel in the morning, still asleep. And of all the days I would sleep through chapel, this would have been the day because there was this old man, probably in his upper 80s, speaking in chapel that day with this kind of drowning, monotone voice. But I tell you what, I never paid more attention in my life. This man started sharing the story of Moses when Moses was before the burning bush. And what's he tell God? He gives God every excuse in the book. God, God I can't do this. I'm not a very good speaker. God, please send somebody else. And what does God do? He says, he reassures him, I'll be with you. I'll provide for you. And that old man speaking said, Moses' greatest gift was his availability. And if you make yourself available to God, God will use you. 
And God took those words spoken out of that man's voice and injected them straight into my heart. I left that day saying, God, I don't feel like I'm supposed to be here. I don't feel cut out for this. I I feel like maybe you've got this wrong, but you know what, God? I'm going to make myself available. I'm going to allow myself to be used by you. So I went home that summer, came back for the fall semester, sophomore year, and I just started saying, God, use me. Whatever, any time an opportunity arose, I said yes. I, I began to stretch myself and get out of my comfort zone and do things that weren't comfortable to me. I know there are some of you here today who don't feel like you're much, who don't feel like you've got a lot to offer, but I'm telling you, God can use you. You may say, I don't have very much talent. I don't feel very gifted. I'm not right-handed. You might be surprised at how God uses you if you yield yourself to him, if you make yourself available. It's all about obedience. Have you yielded yourself to him to say, God, how do you want to use me? God, what have you told me to do that I'm not doing? What burden have you placed on my heart? What person have you urged me to share my faith with? Listen, God does his work in this world through ordinary people. Not extraordinary people, ordinary people who obey him in ordinary ways. He does it as you faithfully serve as a mother, as you faithfully share Christ with a friend, as you faithfully care for your neighbors, as you faithfully serve in our kids' ministry here, as you stop to buy a take of gas for someone in need. And what God does is he takes those weak acts of obedience and he infuses them with his power. It is not about the right hand of your ability, but it's your left hand of weakness yielded to God and availability. I want to close simply by asking you this. Have you learned the secret? Have you learned the secret of Christianity? Do you know what it's all about? It's that salvation comes not by strength, but by a gift given to those who are weak enough to receive it. Have you received that gift? Are you willing to, to humble yourself? Say, not on my own efforts, not on my own strength, but God, in your strength, I receive the salvation you're offering me. Let's pray together. God, we can identify with this story because we find ourselves in it. All of us come before you feeling like there's not a whole lot that we have to offer. Throughout our lives, God, you have humbled us in different ways and made it very clear that we can't save ourselves. We need a Savior. And God, you have shown us through the story of Scripture and you have shown us most fully in the person of Jesus that your plan and your ways are different than what we would expect. Oftentimes, we expect strong political leaders or warrior leaders or incredible philosophers, thinkers, but but Jesus came in weakness. And God, what a beautiful plan that is. It's to remind us that it's not about us. It's not about what we can earn, but God, it's about what we can receive through you in faith. God, I pray that if there is anyone here today who has not received the gift of salvation, they would cry out to you in faith.
Say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I accept him as my Lord and Savior. I believe. I want to surrender my life to the waters of baptism. I want to be raised up in newness of life. And I want to leave this place serving you, living for you. God, if there's anybody here who has not made that decision, I pray that they would do that. Lord, I also pray for those of us. Maybe we've been following Jesus for a while now. Some of us for several years, decades even. And we've gotten to a place where we're pretty comfortable doing things on our own, doing things on our own strength. God, remind us today that you save us through the weakness of faith. that I wouldn't trust a single breath on my own without you. Humble us now. We are yours. Use us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.